0818-715-815. Hello, good afternoon. You are very welcome to Liveline. Katie Hannan with you uh, this week for Joe. Um, you were listening to the news at one there and uh, those statistics, a record 931 patients on trolleys today waiting for admission to a hospital bed. That is 171 cases higher than the previous record of overcrowding, which was 760 cases last December 19th. And of course, you know, we hear these numbers and you can kind of get a bit number numb. (laughs) But every single one of those cases, every single one of that 931 is a family, a patient and a family under uh, horrific stress. Uh, And I want to talk to one of those now. Laura, good afternoon. Hi, Katie. Good afternoon. Yeah, Laura, you're you're just back home from the States for Christmas. I am, yeah. We got home the Sunday before Christmas. We live in Seattle. And you have, uh, as your son is what age? He will be 14 uh, this coming Saturday. Okay, so tell us your story. Uh, he became unwell around Christmas. He did, yeah. So Christmas Day, he started feeling unwell and then progressively got worse kind of Christmas night. Um, his symptoms were fever and vomiting. Um, and so... As a parent of a 14-year-old, you know, I've had sick kids. I also have a daughter who's 10. Uh, My rule of thumb is to normally let it go three days because in most circumstances, kids kind of, you know, they get over it within three days. So waited, we, you know, administered the usual calpol and norofen and monitored um, what he was doing. And then by Wednesday evening, things, I, I just wasn't seeing him improving at all. And so took the decision to uh, take him into hospital. And what was the situation you found when you got into hospital at that stage? Well, um, unfortunately, Harrison, he was actively vomiting at this this point. And so, um, you know, I walked into a a very busy, um, you know, emergency room kind of situation. You know, I don't know if that's an American term, but an A&E situation. A lot of kids coughing and whatnot. Um, you know, we we were checked in pretty quickly and triaged pretty quickly, but then kind of put in a corridor and my son was actively vomiting at the time, which was horrific for him and obviously not very pleasant for people around him, um, given that, you know, you don't know what um, illnesses people are coming in with. So uh, that was not obviously an ideal situation. Um, I started overhearing conversations of people who were saying that they'd been in for six, seven, eight, nine hours and still hadn't hadn't been seen. Um, and so it was a pretty awful moment as a parent because my son looked at me, you know, with tears in his eyes and, you know, vomiting and saying, Mom, look, I, I can't stay here if I'm not, you know, if nothing's going to happen. I, You know, I can't be here. I feel so bad sitting in a... You know, just a very uncomfortable chair in the middle of a corridor. Yeah. So um, I did um, speak with an, a nurse and explained that he was actively vomiting. And at that point, they took us into a room um, to try and keep him away from, you know, they didn't know what it was. Um, so they put us in a room at that point. And this was to save other people around him from whatever he might be, uh, whatever infection might be there. As yeah, well as I mean, himself, they, at that point, yeah. they didn't know what it was. Yeah, and did yeah, you? Yeah, and and were you there much longer than that? Then, having been, you know, given your room. 
So yeah, he was admitted. I mean, he I, we had a number of, of uh, doctors come and see us because they didn't know what it was, and I had spoken to some of the doctors, and they had said that on this particular night things weren't as bad in terms of um, the waiting times, which I could hardly believe. But the previous night and the night before that, things were apparently they expressed to me that things were pretty horrific in in this particular A and E. Um, at that point, he was admitted and he was, you know, admitted to a ward and he stayed in until Thursday. Uh, he was released then on Thursday, but, you know, he had been on IV drips and he had anti-sickness medication. So he was fine Thursday, then Friday night. He was vomiting again. We were due to fly back on Saturday, at which point, um, 3.30 in the morning, I decided I needed to take him back in because he was he was going downhill again. Um, and that was when things got particularly bad. Um, the situation in this particular A&E was really bad. And so um, we went in again. We were triaged reasonably quickly, uh, but then sent to the corridor again. He's actively vomiting. Um, I, I kind of knew at that point that they, they shouldn't be leaving us in a corridor. So they did take us to a room. But then we waited um, from 4.20 a.m. until midday to see a doctor. Um, and that was with him, four, you know, sorry, fever. Four, four uh, twenty. Sorry, Laura. So 4.20 in the morning when you arrived there and you finally saw <clears throat> a doctor the following day around noon, At is midday. Uh, yeah. So that's yeah. what, about 16 hours, is it? No, I mean, not by the time we got out, it had been 16 hours yeah. by the time we actually got out of there. But in the jigs and the reels, I had... Um, Overheard a conversation um, with a particular doctor and then went out to speak with them. Um, you know, obviously at this point I was very frustrated. We were due to fly back. I understood at that point there was probably no chance that we were going to actually be able to make our flight. But the doctor in particular or in question said that they had been working for 17 hours. There was no way that they were able to see more patients. And at that particular time, there was no doctor in the A&E seeing patients that they were a doctor had come into work um, and was was ill and had to be sent home and that they were waiting for consultants to arrive um, to the A&E to actually see patients but for a period of time there was no um, doctor actually seeing patients in the A&E That's an extraordinary situation and this is a busy A&E Yeah um, this is a, yeah, yeah, with a lot of a lot of poor, sickly children that were in in a really bad way. And I mean, you must have been the fact that he had been in hospital and had been uh, released. Was that you know? Was did that come up in the triaging? And was there a, an extra concern because of that? Because he had been already you know on drips in hospital for a couple. Well, of days. I, yeah. I mean, I got the sense that there might not a liability issue, but the fact that they had sent him home and obviously he wasn't well enough to be said, you know, that he was sent home. I got that impression when we eventually did see a doctor um, that, you know, why had they sent him home? Because he obviously wasn't well enough to be sent home. But again, I, you know, I can't speak to the circumstances of why that, you know, yeah. why they decided, you know, you know, they made that decision. Um, I did, you know, get the sense that they, did, they didn't want to keep him in um, uh, because of staffing issues. Um but I mean, that's that was near here and there. I mean, we're still home. He's still not well enough to travel. 
but it's a, as a parent, I have to say, it's a frightening situation to have to make a decision of do I want to bring my son back into that situation or, you know, see him still not doing well. If I, I can tell you, if I was in the States, I would not have kept him home here those last couple of days. I absolutely would have brought him to hospital, but I can't do that. And I just, I don't want to put him back into that situation. He's horrified um, and, and has asked me not to bring him back in there. So for now, I'm okay. I believe that he is hopefully on the mend and he's not deteriorating. Um, but, you know, I... For for my situation, you know, I couldn't keep. He needed IV. Um, he needed IV treatment, and he needed anti sickness medication, which you can't get, you know, at home. So, um, but I did hear stories in the hospital of people waiting seven, eight, nine hours to be told they need their kid needed Calpol and Nurofen, you know, and that was the only treatment that they needed. I felt that if the hospital could improve the way in which they treat their patients by giving them more um, visibility on what the situation is in the current, in whatever A&E they're actually in, to allow people to make a decision, look, is, do I really feel, you know, is my kid sick enough to wait eight or nine hours or would they be better off being at home in the comfort of their bed and then when they're stronger, maybe coming back in? But maybe something that's more a robust triage situation because, I mean, if I had waited nine hours to be told my kid needed Calpol and to go home, I mean, I would have, you know, that would have been an even more horrendous situation than what we were in. Well, I, I just think, like, if you are in A&E, you obviously, and we all hear the warnings now, don't go to an A&E or don't go to an emergency department unless you absolutely have to. So if you're there with a sick child, you're really worried about that child. But to be told, and I mean, we have to take, this is what a doctor told you, so, we, you know, we don't have any other source for it. But yeah. to be told that the only doctor who was supposed to be on duty was sent home and there was nobody at that moment in time to see any child is a very frightening situation, I would imagine, uh, if you are in any, yeah. looking at your sick child. Yeah. And uh, I mean, there were kids, obviously, there were, you know, kids more sick than my son and less sick and everything in between, right? And so, you know, thankfully, Harrison didn't need an emergency doctor in that situation but I mean I, I can't speak to what would happen if, if that was the case Yeah, Laura uh, thank you so much for that and I hope your son uh, is feeling better and uh, can put it all behind him and a, a very unpleasant Christmas experience for him yeah. uh, I've got somebody else now uh, Marie you had a very frightening situation with your son Yeah Hi Hi Marie um, So last Wednesday night, Thursday morning during the night. Um, my son, I should probably start off by saying, has a severe cardiac history. Right. Um, so he got sick during the night. Uh, oxygen levels, like most people, is 100%. What, sorry, what, what, age, what age would your son be? Sorry, he's 14. He's 14, okay. And as you say, he's he a history common. of cardiac... of cardiac, cardiac history. History, okay. So obviously you have to watch him carefully. Yeah. Okay, so take even, me back. Last even at that. So er, early hours of last Thursday morning. He basically couldn't breathe. I, lucky enough, had oxygen at home. Not because he was prescribed or anything. It's now going to be put in place like we need home oxygen. But I had oxygen and his lips were nearly black. Like he was, oxygen levels were down about 60. He couldn't breathe. He couldn't speak. I, lucky enough, I'm a nurse. I knew what to do. I done it. 
put them on the oxygen. I rang 999 and I put it in as a Delta call, which is cardiac arrest. Which is the absolute highest priority highest. for ambulances. Yeah, Exactly. I said Delta. I was told the nearest ambulance was 45 minutes away. 45 minutes. Oh my God. 45 minutes. And my son was about to go into respiratory arrest. If that happens, they then go into, even in a normal healthy child, if they go into respiratory arrest and you don't prevent it, they then go into cardiac arrest. Statistics will show it's very hard to get a healthy child out of cardiac arrest. My child is cardiac. I put him on the oxygen. They told me the ambulance was 45 minutes away for a cardiac arrest call. I, now, I've seen it. I work in NE. I couldn't believe it. I actually couldn't believe that it was that bad for a cardiac arrest call. It's a delta. Oh, I, I actually... 45 minutes. The hair is actually after standing up on my, on oh, my arms. Um, that must have been so terrifying. Never. And my daughter, like, she's 28. She's, oh, like, traumatised. And she was on the phone and she said... I, like, rang the number, told her I wanted to say about that and handed her the phone because I was obviously dealing with my son. And she was like, it's an emergency. And they went, yeah, they're all emergencies. And she said, this is a 14-year-old child. Yeah. Doesn't matter. 45 minutes. Thankfully, I had the whereabouts to ring the guards who were absolutely fabulous. I, I honestly don't know how we would have... I honestly don't know what we would have done without them. They met us, like, where, you know, I told them that I was going to be meeting them on the motorway. I live down the country. Mm-hmm. I need to get my son to come So they blue lighted us. They drove, like, a blue light, and then the other guard drove my car. And we were there. We were actually in Crumlin Hospital before the ambulance would have got to my house. Right. So there was and I don't know how I had the whereabouts to ring the guards. Yeah. But like, and I hope they don't get inundated with calls and I would like instead of the ambulance, but only for them that night, we just wouldn't have met her. Th- and th- like that is just terrifying, I have to say. That is a terrifying age, scenario. The ambulance service is a joke, an absolute. And you know what? We have the best paramedics, we have the best drivers, but they can't go to a call and say, you don't need an ambulance. Like, they're well qualified. And they're not allowed. The ambulance service and somebody has to be held accountable why a 14-year-old child could have been left to die because your cardiac arrest call is 45 minutes. It's not acceptable. It's not acceptable in this day and age. It's a national ambulance service that is not working. We have ambulances coming from Wicklow, like to Carlow, like to pick up patients, to bring to Washford, Kilkenny, Wex. Like, it's a joke. It's an absolute joke and something needs to be done about it. And that's why I'm ringing. Like, I knew. I knew what to do. And I knew. Like, thankfully, I'm a nurse. Well, thankfully, you had oxygen in the house. I had oxygen in the house. And I was only... The reason I had oxygen in the house was to get him from... Like, instead of bringing him to the nearest hospital, as in, I didn't mean it like in an emergency, like what happened. I meant, I just put him on the oxygen and we'd be able to go to Crumlin instead of the nearest hospital because, obviously... He's too complex for the nearest hospital. So I meant like, you know, a comfortable two litres. He was on 15 litres with a non-rebreather mask on and he couldn't, he couldn't breathe like he thought he was dying. Now, if I had to wait for the ambulance, he wouldn't be here. Oh my 
God. And how is he now? He's great. We're home now and he's great. Like, he bounces back so quick. Like, you know, it was uh, influenza he got, but that nearly killed him. Because when his temperature goes up, his oxygen levels just drop completely. And that's something that we're aware of now and we're getting home oxygen in. But, like, if it wasn't for the guards that night, if it wasn't, I like, if it wasn't for the fact I had oxygen, but, it, like, the whole thing is, I have never had to ring an ambulance. I have never, and the one night I needed you most, you're 45 minutes away. I'd have had him buried at that stage. It's too late. It's a cardiac arrest call. 45 minutes. And I want the public to be made aware of how bad this is. That if you have somebody drop in front of you, chest pain, cardiac, whatever, you better, be, you, like, you better, like, you better be aware that you're going to be waiting an hour. The best thing you can do, and I know this is bad, like, to say to people, like, when you're in an emergency or whatever, but, like, what I had to do, and thankfully my daughter was here to help me, is put my son in the car and try and get to Dublin. Try and get away here. But as you say, Marie, like, you were you had one big stroke of luck on your side and that you were a nurse, you knew what to do and you had oxygen, whereas most yeah. people would need a paramedic in that scenario, you know, but like, for that journey. I said to my parents, like, I am a nurse. I'm lucky I have the experience. I know what to do. I kept calm, even though it was my son and I saw how he looked. I'll never forget it. But I knew what to do and I just done it. And I knew... I don't know, in the back of my head, for some reason, I never had oxygen. It's 14 years, never. It's only in the last few months that I had it. And was it in the back of your mind, just in case? Is that why you had had it in the house? He got sick. He's been, like, cardiac-wise, he's deteriorating a bit. Like, so... He's really needed oxygen a lot. Being in hospital when he's sick, so we get men, he needs oxygen, but never anything like this at home, never to the extent that he couldn't talk, that he couldn't breathe. He couldn't breathe. He thought he was dying. Yeah. And I never want to see him like that again, ever. Uh, and, and, and if you're telling me that as a parent or anybody, when you ring 999, don't think the ambulance is coming. You better, like, this is the sad fact. You'd actually be quicker getting in the car and going yourself. And the ambulance service being abused, we have the regular flyers like that are abusing the system. They all have, like, I'm not saying they all have medical cards, but, like, medical cards are covering a lot of it. These are ambulances that are being taken off the road. There is no beds in the hospital, so there's nowhere for the staff to put a patient. So the ambulances, we could have five ambulances blocked up outside A&E. Yeah, that's you see, that, that's the point. And I do think, because I know I spent some time with, with uh, some brilliant ambulance people, drivers and paramedics. They're fantastic. They are amazing people. They do incredible work and they do... They're not they, utilised though. And they, they want to, to be there for, 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 for particularly for every uh, Delta call. But for, for they, they really want to be there. I know that they are very frustrated as well. That, that, as you say there, we know there's examples where they are backed up waiting to offload patients and those patients... Are, are waiting to, to get on trolleys. Even we're not even out. we're not even at the trolley level. Yeah. Where we're waiting to get the trolley. We're not That's even, the... We can't even get a chair yeah. now. There's not even a chair left. But I was speaking to one ambulance driver one night, and he drove 300 kilometres and picked up one patient. Because every time they got near the location, they were told to step down, step down. 
sent on the next one. Step down, step down. I mean, it's just unbelievable. Like, but but you know, there's another thing going on here, and I think it's all to do with the overall crisis uh, at emergency departments that people are told, or people understand that you have to arrive in an ambulance if you have any hope of being triaged and seen. It, you know, and people are yeah, maybe that's, more that's inclined to ring an ambulance because of that. Yeah, and that's not true. And I wish the public would just know that. So just because you ring an ambulance doesn't mean you're going to get seen quicker because we triage and assess. And if you're fit to go in the waiting room, you'll go in the waiting room the same as if you drove yourself in. So coming in by ambulance is not going to get you seen quicker. Yeah, but we, but we should be and telling... that makes yeah. needs to be done away with because people need to be aware. Just because you ring an ambulance does not mean you're going to be seen quicker. You won't. You won't. An assessment will be met a triage and if you're fit to sit in the waiting room you'll sit in the waiting room so you go off the ambulance trolley and you sit in the chair in the waiting room like everyone else that may need to be done away with as well there's too many like you know and these people are ringing ambulances for things that they don't need but I suppose as well and I wish and the I public could realise like if you were in my situation the other night and you phone an ambulance for whatever reason that you don't need it for how can you have that in your conscience like that you're taking the ambulance off the road for a car, like a blue light car. I know, I know, Matt Marie. Like, but, you know, I do think most people, to be fair now, and I know people end up in, you know, in ambulance arriving and maybe mm. they, they, they didn't need it ultimately. But most people are very afraid. You know, they're afraid for their health, they're afraid for their elderly, you know, elderly loved ones' help. And that's why ambulances get called sometimes even mm. if they're not necessary. Now, I know that's cold comfort to you, Marie, when you were in the situation you were in. It is abused, and I know that firsthand. It is abused. Care doc have a lot that they need to be held more accountable for. Everything is referred to A and E. They've even they're even telling people to go home and ring an ambulance. So these people are literally probably driving past the hospital. Go home and ring an ambulance. Like they're not they're not seeing the patients, but they're being paid for it. Like there's too many things here that are like the public aren't aware of. Care docs are being referred. Like they're getting paid for the phone calls. But they're telling you to go to A&E. A&E can't handle it. Like, it's just too many people. The ambulance service is what I'm, like, my topic now. If you need, a car, like, a cardiac arrest call, like, when the ambulance service are doing their own county, it works better. Nobody's taking responsibility for this national ambulance service that is not working. It wasn't working before covid definitely not working now. It's definitely not and somebody needs to be held accountable. And the reason I'm ringing is to try and prevent this happening to somebody else. But my son could have died the other night waiting for a 45-minute ambulance in a cardiac arrest. You have to be joking, like. I know. and I'm I mean, I knew it was bad. I didn't realise a cardiac arrest? 45 minutes. Like... How is that acceptable? How are we saying, like, yeah, the National Ambulance Service is like, it's not working and something needs to be done about before somebody does actually die. He's 14. It's not acceptable. I know, it's actually very frightening. It's very frightening that you can put in a call for a 14-year-old yeah. <clears throat> in that situation and be told 45 minutes. It's very hard to get your head around it, actually. I'm, I, I, it's shocking. And I had to put him in the car on oxygen and go myself and luckily rang like you know I rang the guards and they were fantastic brilliant 
can't thank them enough. Like, they got us there in record time and, like, by the time I got there, like, and I'd rang ahead and said it was a resource. But I know to do all these things. I would dread to think if I wasn't a nurse. But also, how? Marie, how did you keep your, your cool around it? Because, I mean, there's a reason that doctors don't treat their own family. Do you know there's a reason for yeah. that? That it's a, very, it's a very, very difficult thing to actually... I honestly, I honestly don't know. I honestly... If you had said to me, would I... Like, it just... It all happened so quick and I just reacted. I work in any... I don't know, but, like, not in repairs you'd see or something like that. None. I've never, ever seen that as bad in my life, ever. And to think that I rang an emergency number for an ambulance and I was 12, 45 minutes away. Everything, I just had to start thinking on top of my head. Ring the guards, ring ring the hospital, ring, like, do this, do this, do this. And I just done everything. I didn't actually break down until, like, the next day. Away from him, obviously. But, like, the whole trauma of it hasn't really hit me yet. Yeah. We're home now and he's doing well. But like... Yeah, that, that kind of a situation would leave its mark for sure. Yeah, even like on my daughter, like she was traumatised. Like, I mean, it's not something you should see. It's just not. And okay, it happens, but like he could have, like if he had died because I didn't have oxygen, that's not acceptable. He's 14. It's not acceptable. And he's here now and he's fine and he's on his PS5 and he's happy out. You know, that but, nearly yeah, didn't happen. We could, we could be having a totally different yeah. conversation, yeah. That, 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 like uh, I dropped my daughter back to the airport yesterday and I said, you know, like this day could have been totally different. Like, she stepped in, I stepped in. Like, I'm just so grateful she was here. She, after going back, like, you know, she was home for Christmas. Unbelievable. Unbelievable, and I just want the public to be aware that something needs to be done about this. Like, the ambulance service is not up to scratch, not cardiac arrest in a 14 year old child is 45 minutes. When is something going to be done about it? When? When someone dies, when a 14 year old dies, yeah. Um, Marie, very best uh, to your son there and to your family, and he's very lucky to have you. <laughs> You, oh, uh, I'm so lucky to have him. Uh, yeah, it's uh, that is a real, real uh, cautionary tale there, and uh, as you say, it can't be left there. That that that, no. that is a a very dangerous situation, obviously. Yeah, uh, something we, needs to be done. Absolutely, um, Marie. Thank you for that. I want to bring in Amy, who has another had another very distressing story uh, waiting for an ambulance. Amy, good afternoon. Hi, love. How are you? Good. Your your story was it was your dad, was it? Yeah, my 75-year-old father. Um, he was sick over the whole Christmas vomiting and refused to go to the hospital, as men do. But he was watching the news and if you're not sick enough, don't come into A&E. And he kept saying, I'm not going to sit in the chair for hours. I'm not going to sit in the chair for hours. But on Wednesday, the 28th, um, I decided he's too sick. He needs to go to a hospital. And... Every time he sat up, he was passing out because he was so dehydrated and he was having absence seizures, which I wasn't aware of at the time, but now I know what they were. And I rang the ambulance at 20 past five on that day and it didn't arrive until 20 past 11 Wednesday night. We were six hours waiting on it while he was collapsing in the house. 
And so his symptoms were he was was he did he have pain or what like what 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 how were you able to describe his symptoms to the to the ambulance service? Um Jamlin Slaves got a call off me saying that he'd been vomiting for a number of days. He had seen a GP in the uh, call out doctor in between it. So he'd been vomiting from the Thursday the twenty second. I had a call out doctor on the twenty sixth on Saint Seams's Day who prescribed him and acid and he was and I said to him, he's now vomiting up litres of acid. I said, he's so weak. I said, every time he sits up, he's passing out. I can't get him down the stairs. I'm here. There's only, I'm here and my son had just come back. I said, we can't get him down the stairs safely. He'll fall. I can't get him into my car. I need someone to help me. Right. And what did they say to you initially? Initially, I was told because he's breathing, his heart is okay and that he was breathing fine that I'd be hours waiting. And I said, look, I said, one way or another, I have to wait. I can't get him out of the house yeah. and they told me that if he gets worse to ring back so I he had I'd been up checking on him all the time and at 20 past 8 he sat on the sides of the bed and next of all he just started vomiting unstoppable gurgling choking on it and then fell onto the floor in the bedroom and I rang Yamlin's back and they said he was now highest priority and that they'd have one out. But at that moment, there was not one free ambulance in the whole of Dublin. So I rang then. Or I said, OK, my, myself and my son got my dad back up onto the bed. Again, he can't get him down the stairs because, like that, he was passing out on us constantly, in and out of consciousness, hallucinating and things like that. So eventually, someone rang me, someone from the ambulance service rang me at about quarter, quarter to 11 for an update to see how he was. So I told him that he was still no better, he was still in and out of consciousness, he was still dehydrated and that I still needed help. And I actually said to him, please, can you just send someone to get him down the stairs? I'll get him in the car, I'll get him to the hospital. Myself, just get him down the stairs safely. But I think he knew from the distress to me that my dad was that bad. And when we got him, when he, they actually, he rang me back to him and said, there's an ambulance on the way. But it's not guaranteed if they get a cardiac call, which from listening to the other woman, I completely understood. But at the same time, my dad was really ill and is still really ill in hospital. He's on the CCU ward. He actually had a coronary, a heart issue. He has the absence seizures. And now he also, what was causing the problem was a bowel blockage. All right. So that we know that that can be very serious, particularly if you're... Yeah, nice. and the fact that he was vomiting for days at 75. My dad has never been sick in his life. The last time he was in hospital was for one night last year, and before that he was nine. He's a healthy 75-year-old. Yeah, it's just, I, I just, the distress of the stress of, you know, not knowing when that ambulance is going to come, not knowing how sick, what's actually going on with him. It's just, it's a hard And then I wasn't allowed in one. Of course, that's the other side of it now, yeah. Yeah, that's the that's because so of COVID he's restrictions. Thrown in and out of consciousness. Yeah, and he's no one in there as his voice to the point of. I got a phone call on Saturday from a doctor to say we need to speak to one of the family. Your dad is having absent seizures, and when he explained the symptoms, I said I told the ambulance men and the nurses in A and E that that was happening on Wednesday. It's Saturday. He's like picking up on it now. Yeah. Because I wasn't there to be my dad's voice, it was missed. Yeah, as you say, because he, he was obviously wasn't in any position to describe his own situation at that stage. He was too weak. Yeah. 
he was too weak to, to describe. And not only that, my dad is of an age, of a generation, that don't argue with the doctors. They don't argue with the system. Yeah. The system is broken. Six hours waiting on an ambulance. Okay, he wasn't cardiac, but he was a sick man that was needed immediate medical attention and I couldn't get him to a hospital and there was no one there to help. I just We just have a, a brief statement from Dublin Fire Brigade Ambulance Service. I think that was who you had contacted. That's who and did a lot of the calls. I tell you, they were lovely when they got here. They are overworked and underpaid. Oh, they're fa- they are fault. I can tell you, they're I fabulous people. Yeah, they, it they, was not them and it's not the nurses or doctors. They are, they're overworked. They're a fantastic service. I can, I can, I can tell you that from um, my own engagement with them. Uh, the Dublin Fire Brigade Ambulance Service is currently facing significant pressure due to a large volume of calls with resources available we are making every effort to reach those in need however they say on occasions there may be delays and um, that is um, that is a kind of an understatement it looks like in, in terms of the situation you I found yourself in but this has been going on this is not just a, a post-Covid or a January thing or this is going on for Five a long time So I had a friend waiting eight hours on her, her anonymous for a mother who was having many strokes eight hours yeah, it uh, it's a uh, it's a very scary place to find yourself. You can't in. get the help that you need to save someone's life. There's something wrong. Yeah, well said, Amy. Well said. Okay, we'll take we'll take a break. Thanks for that, Amy, and and best of luck to your dad. Talk to Joe on oh eight one eight seven one five eight one five. Talk to Joe on oh eight one eight seven one five eight one five. Now, we've been talking about the chaos. Chaos is the only word for it, I think, in the health service as uh, we are battling uh, the, what are they calling it, the triple pandemic. The, 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 we have the COVID, we have uh, the flu, we have RSV. And we've heard there from somebody who uh, tried to access care in an A&E, in an emergency department, and from people who were trying to actually get into hospital uh, and long waits and very distressing situations there with ambulance waits. I want to talk to somebody now who's actually inside the health service and dealing with all of that coming into them. Uh, Josephine, good afternoon. Hi, good afternoon, Katie. You're a nurse, Josephine. I am indeed. Um, And the reason I contacted the show today um, is in relation to burnout. Um, I speak for myself and a small number of my colleagues. We're agency nurses. And for a very long time, we felt a sense of loyalty um, and would have worked many overtime shifts um, due to shortage of staff in hospitals. Um, At this point in time, we feel we've been completely abandoned. Nobody cares about us at all. The pandemic payment the recognition payment, which we were supposed to get last year. We're now January 23 and we still haven't received that payment. You still didn't, you still don't have the thousand nope. euro? No. Nope. Nope. Uh, this is because you're an agency nurse and not employed directly by the HSC. Is that what they're telling you? Absolutely. So the situation is, we have been told by the agency that they have been given our names because we were employed to work within the HSE, so we are due the payment. 
the process has been handed over to an independent body to quicken the process. I would have sent four emails to the independent body and they don't even respond. They don't even respond to let us know when we may get it. And so myself and my small number of colleagues, we have decided we won't be doing any more um, agency over time. Um, We're going to put our own health first. We are so tired. And there is an overall feeling that just nobody cares. It's go in and get on with the job. It does feel, Josephine, like we're a long way away now from that clap that you were getting. That, uh, you know, we were all supposed to stand outside our doors and clap for... Uh, the frontline workers like yourself, and yeah. uh, and here you are. I, I just it beggars belief that that thousand yeah. euro has not been yeah. paid to people who are and in the front line at a time when there was pre- no vaccinations, when there yeah. was you know serious fears about what yeah. COVID could do to people, and indeed a lot of yeah. people did get long COVID uh, in in that yeah. scenario, and and you haven't still got the thousand euro. That is but just Katie. You know we we. We don't need a clap, okay? We do what we do because we really, really care. We have huge empathy for people. But we have now hit a point where we actually were losing that empathy because nobody cares about us. Nobody cares about us. Nobody cares that we don't get toilet breaks in a timely fashion. We don't get to have our tea break or our lunch breaks in a timely fashion. We don't get out of work on time. It's just work overload every single shift, every shift. You see, I do think that when we hear from people like we've heard today on the programme and we've heard yeah. on other programmes yeah. of they bring their child in, they bring their elderly parent in, they bring, and mm. it's a shocking thing, but that's you know a terrible incident in, in, in their family lives. But I'm thinking yeah. if you had to get up every day and go into that as your place of work, yeah. it must be but, very difficult. Yeah, and what, what I think is important that people hear nurses say is that when we are working in the area and we are trying to provide care with dignity and respect and we can't do it. Like, we feel disheartened regarding our practice. And in the event of tragedies taking place, our pain is on the line because there will be investigations and if we're seen to not have carried out certain duties, our pain is on the line because that's where the book will stop with the people who treated the individual. So it's really dangerous. It's really dangerous practice. And when we're treating elderly people, sick children, it's as if they were your own. Like nobody wants to observe an elderly person where we know there is an element of neglect in the AD department. We know there is because we cannot get to them in a timely fashion. It's it's really appalling. And I mean and Josephine, as long as, as long as I've been 
working in journalism, I think we've been I've been writing stories and 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 broadcasting stories about crowded uh, A and E departments. But is it has it become noticeably worse? Uh, you know, is it, what is has there been a shift in terms of the level of overcrowding in your as you as a you know an experienced nurse? Yeah, I think I think over the years, yeah, it, there has been a slow deterioration. I mean, this is not all because of COVID. No, there has been a deterioration over the years, over probably five, six, seven year period. Yeah. And do you do you, do you feel that? Is there any light at the end of the tunnel in terms of? No, I don't see anything changing, Katie. I see nothing changing, and I have some colleagues who are, you know, reasonably newly qualified. They're all heading abroad. Yeah. They're all heading abroad. Yeah. This is what you hear a lot of, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and it's really understandable why they would do that. It, it, so it's 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 very sad that the whole situation is incredibly sad. Will you stay with us, Josephine? Because I've got uh, somebody on another line that will, I think, uh, echo what you're saying, Edward. Edward, good afternoon. You can identify, I'm sure, with a lot of what Josephine is saying there. Uh, yes, I can. I mean, as a consultant surgeon, and I've been in practice now for thirty years. It's a, it's, the system is really about the patient. Uh, it's about the staff and about the patient's family. And I think there has been such a significant deterioration in the last uh, three, three to four weeks in the Irish health system that there needs to be immediate redress of the problem. And the problem is that we can no longer deliver safe care in emergency departments in many of the hospitals talking to my colleagues. I work in a regional hospital, of which there are approximately 20 in the country, and these complement the university city hospitals. But we do about 65% of the work at a national level, or we used to. And what's happened over the last few weeks in particular has been very distressing. It's extremely distressing for staff to, uh, sorry, for patients uh, to be sitting on chairs, expecting proper delivery of care. It is not possible to deliver health care to someone on a chair. Uh, people will die as a result of this, uh, and people will suffer adverse outcomes. You've heard the emergency overcrowding for some months, but this is different. Well, yeah, can you explain that to me? Because I'm sure people do tune out a little bit. If you haven't had, if you haven't needed to use the health service or, or access the health service in recent times, you might just tune out and say, "Aren't we always hearing about this January? This is what people, this is what the media go on about every January: the hospital overcrowding." Why is it different? Why, why has there been a step change in it? Because it has reached a tipping point beyond which we can actually manage. So if you're sick and you've got, say, a a perforated bowel or appendicitis or a surgical condition or you've got a medical condition like chest pain or shortness of breath, you you have to be examined in a cubicle. Uh, You you need to lie flat. We as doctors can't actually examine people standing up or in a chair. So, for example, I was on call recently and we had to do a rotating system of having the patients outside a cubicle, rotating them in and out, in and out to examine them. My junior staff can't re-examine the patients. It's extremely difficult. So what the Minister for Health needs to do is to recognise that there is a major threat to the well-being of the health of Irish people, particularly the elderly. It would be analogous to Dublin Airport 
where you've got that huge overcrowding uh, situation where you couldn't get through security. But change those passengers to patients. Change them to old patients and change... If you went to Dublin Airport and you went into the waiting areas and you found everyone was elderly and sick on a chair waiting to get on a flight, you would be appalled. So what is happening in Irish hospitals, and I, I can speak from my own regional hospital and talking to my colleagues in other hospitals, it's all the same. What we need to do is we need to have some remedies to this, and the remedies are fairly clear. First of all, there has to be a clear line of communication from a management, a recognition that this is a real problem. This problem uh, will affect and, and as will kill people over the next uh, couple of weeks unnecessarily. So we need to recognise there is a major health issue in Ireland in relation to acute care delivery. As a surgeon and a consultant, over 30 years, I have never seen the situation in, in such a terrible state that it's in. So there are a number of uh, potential solutions. Sorry, to this. sorry, before I just, why is it though? Do you do, do you have a sense of why it is gone so it, bad it, it, in such there's such a crisis well, point? Well, it boils down to management and the HSE structure. The HSE run the health service, and they must be accountable for this. So they are the ones that are responsible within the Department of Health and the Minister, and other politicians. They are responsible for the delivery of healthcare. They should be in there as a crisis point, sorting this problem out so that people can get just humane healthcare delivery. They are not able to get it, never mind elective surgery, that has gone by the wayside. Opening up private hospitals is a, is a stopgap measure. Most people in the country do not have private insurance and the NTPF has broken the public hospital system. So we're in a situation where patients can't get the treatment they deserve quickly enough. We're at the situation almost now where we can't do emergency surgery in our public hospitals because there's no bed for the patient to return to and they cannot be accepted in the operating theatre. Yeah. Okay, will you, Edward, hold that, hold that thought, please. And Josephine, please stay with us. I have to take a break, but I want to come back. I, I really want to try and dig into where we're going with this and what exactly is happening right now inside the health service. Talk to Joe on 0818 715 815. Talk to Joe on 0818 715 815. Or text us on 51551. And we were talking to Edward there. Edward, uh, you're still with us? Yes, I am. Yeah, Edward, you're a consultant surgeon. I'm just wondering, like, uh, have surgeries been put on hold? Or like, what is actually happening in your end of things at the moment, if anything at all? Well... It's very difficult for patients to get elective surgery other than cancer surgery. So that means if you have a gallbladder problem or some other hernia problem or another surgical condition, you will not get that operated on except through the NTPF in a private hospital. This is unsatisfactory. Uh, You're going to have a significant delay. We're seeing more patients coming in with complications um, from their condition because they can't be treated in a timely fashion. So the, the health service uh, needs needs to actually look at the problem, have a clear line of communication to the staff, and identify what people are talking about are increasing community beds so that people who don't need to be in hospital can be in the community. Mm-hmm. We need to have longer service hours for our imaging systems, for our radiology. They need more support so that the throughput can be increased in the hospital. We need to look at primary care and the support that they need to ensure optimal referral patterns 
the ambulance service has been disabled by having queues to queue outside the emergency departments of all the hospitals, and this is this is a tragedy. So we've, we we need yeah, immediate I, did, action. Did you hear Marie earlier about what happened with her fourteen year old son? Yes, well, yes, that's very sad, and it's lucky that only for the guards, her son would not have survived. And this is the human tragedy of the current crisis. People need to recognise there is a crisis. That's the first thing. If you don't recognise there's a problem, you're not going to do anything about it. And there hasn't been that level of recognition. When we had a problem uh, going on holidays, there was immediate recognition of the problem and attempts to address it. There needs to be the same uh, attention paid to people's health and well-being. But do you, I mean, the stress of working within that environment and having the sense that there isn't an appreciation maybe up the line of the, the, the seriousness of the crisis? Well, I'm very fortunate to have a very nice job and I love my patients. So what I think really at my age, probably not that important in a sense. I'm there as an advocate for patients. It's difficult when you're younger, and I heard one of your nursing, uh, a nurse speak a moment ago, and for younger staff, it is very disillusioning. Uh, we are trained to deal with this situation, but the younger staff, uh, it is very difficult, and that's why they're leaving the country, in part of the reason why they're leaving the country. So we can't train people because we're not doing elective surgery like we should in most hospitals. So they're becoming disenfranchised, and they want to leave. Similarly with the nurses, I, I felt I've, I was nearly in tears in the emergency department the other day. The working conditions for, for nurses is so stressful. But it's not about really, it's not really about us, Katie, it's about our patients. So we have to think about the sick people on the chair or the person on the floor. I know, but I'm, I'm, but I'm aware that it's, that's, that it, it's all of a piece though, isn't it? Because if you, if you are burning out, if you're, you're causing burnout for the people who are looking after the sick people on the chair and on the floor, like it's, it's a very precarious situation for all. And, and then you have ambulances backed up, unable to offload patients. And you have people like Marie at home with a sick child, terrified of what's going to happen. I mean, it's a... Well, if a member of your family, Katie, had acute appendicitis and you need a perforated appendix and you needed surgery and you booked the patient into theatre and the theatre said, sorry, we can't send for the patient because we've no bed to put the patient in. Yeah. Are we, are not, we, are we at that stage yet, though? We're, we're not. We're at that stage, yes. So you were saying that if that a, a, a child with a perforated appendix might not be able to access surgery. Well, a child would, in a sense, if the child is over 16, they, they go to an adult ward. But a paediatric ward, they tend to be much more flexible and always have more beds. So that mightn't be the best example. But if, you're, if your family member was 18, that becomes an adult patient. And there is a possibility that that patient will not be sent for, for the operating theatre because there is uh, no bed. And then there will be a delay. And delay in surgery is, is a significant issue. Uh, delay in the management of chest and respiratory conditions, similarly. So it's across the spectrum. It doesn't just apply to surgery. No, because we all know and we know, of course, that there was a, a, a tragic situation that we won't go into the details of that because that has to be investigated. But we we all know what can happen with infections uh, that are not uh, seen or treated adequately uh, in these situations. So it's it's a... It's, I just feel it's just such a scary scenario if you're telling me that even if you identify 
a very serious uh, surgical need like that, that you might be basically waitlisted. Yeah, that, that is correct. Um, and that is a possibility. Uh, the first possibility is that you may have difficulty uh, seeing the patient because you have to move a number of people around the emergency department, which are, I, I would consider a fire hazard because it's so hard to move people around you, falling over drip stands and people are, you know, slumped over on chairs. Uh, they're not all slumped over on chairs, so there are people who are walking around and can move around, so they're, they're the, the mobile ones. But overall, it is something like from a horror film to go into a full emergency department. And for the staff working there, it, it must be. I don't know how they do it. I, I take up my hats. I don't work in an emergency department, but I visit it frequently. I take my hats off to them. They're just amazing people to work under those conditions. Similarly, on the wards, where the increasing number of patients are coming through on, into corridors, that's also very difficult. So I think we need to recognize that something has to be done, and this has to come from a national strategy from the government, an immediate national strategy to save lives of Irish patients. Do you get a sense that there is an appreciation up the line of, of, of where you're at at this point, at the point that we have arrived at now? There definitely is not an appreciation. There isn't a clear plan. There is very little communication, and this needs to change. The bureaucratic process of the HSE leaves uh, something to be desired. Morale, just talking to Josephine there, like morale uh, certainly for her and her colleagues, and I know we're talking about a thousand euro, which isn't going to change anybody's life, but I think it's it's the symbolic uh, part of that, that even that wasn't you know, sorted out for, for, for herself and her agency colleagues. Do you get that sense uh, that there is a serious morale problem on top of everything else? Yeah, there is a morale problem uh, across the health service. I mean, people love treating patients and treating them well. And if your process is inhibited by the conditions you work in, it reduces your morale. It makes you edgy um, and people don't want that. Everyone in the health service wants to do the best. There are fantastic people working in our health service and people are still receiving fantastic treatment. But it's getting worse and it is time for a change in the strategy and the management policies and procedures that are, are in place at the moment are not working. The hospitals uh, need to be given more support. The community needs to open up beds so that people can get out of the hospital and there needs to be a new patient flow system. Yeah. Uh, Edward, many thanks for that. It's, it's uh, you know, we don't he- often hear voices like your own from uh, your level within the health service, but I think where, well, we're, where we're at well, now, we, we need to. We have a responsibility, Katie, as a surgeon and a consultant. We have a responsibility to look after and advocate for our patients. It isn't specifically anyone's fault that this is happening. And what we need to do is not blame people, but we need to move on, recognise the problem and fix it. Okay. Urgently. Okay. Urge- Edward, if you can, I don't know what your schedule is, but if you can hang on for a little while, I'd like to see. Uh, I just want to go to another doctor now who has patients, I think, to see, so I need to bring him in. Uh, Dr. Mohammed, Dr. TJ Mohammed, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Uh, th- thank, you. thank you for holding on there. I know you're, you're busy this afternoon, uh, TJ. You left an emergency, uh, uh, working in in, in uh, emergency uh, hospital yes. mar- medicine to set up a practice on your own? Yes. Why? Um, 
I, I, I reached a point where um, year after year we talk about the same problems, whether it's uh, in the hospitals or it's in the media, and nothing actually changes on the ground. Um, so it was at a point where it was literally frustrating to stay uh, in a system where you can't work the way you're trained to work or you should be delivering optimal patient care. You're forced to see patients on chairs in cubicles uh, uh, without uh, proper privacy or uh, or equipment. So it came to a point where I decided to take my expertise and uh, go out into the community. When was that? When did you actually stop working in hospital? That was July of 2022. All oh, right. So just very recently. Very recently, yes. And um, you're now uh, working as a GP? Uh, well, I'm not a trained GP, but uh, I've set up a community centre uh, which is primarily based um, uh, as a GP practice. Uh, uh, but we operate privately at very affordable rates, um, uh, providing services to the uh, people in South Kildare region. And looking back, like, I mean, you said there that, that they, these are problems that, that happen again and again. Like listening to Edward there, he's saying that the last three or four weeks, we have kind of gone on to another level. Do you get that sense looking at this from the primary care end of it? Um, I have now my primary, this is my first year in the primary care and I can see that every client that is coming into us is uh, a client who can get an appointment with the GP were clearly inundated with appointments and uh, medical call orders and everybody else. Uh, but 15 years working in uh, in being trained and working in public health system in Ireland, I, I have seen this crisis play out over and over again every winter. We have struggled with spaces, we have struggled with staff, uh, uh, and there are big statements made everywhere. We come onto the media and we talk about it, but unfortunately there is no ground change that's happening uh, um, uh, on the ground. And, and one big reason is, uh, 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 I don't think so. We have lack of resources. It's the wrong allocation of resources. As a result of which, we actually lose a lot of resources. So, how do you mean? You mean, as you say, we have the resources? Because we know we're pumping money into the health service. We know that there is uh, a lot of money goes into the HSC. Um, and then, you know, every year we hear they go back, there has to be uh, additional funds provided. So how would you reallocate resources? You can double the size of uh, every hospital today. You're still not going to solve the crisis of uh, waiting times, elective procedures, referrals for OGD or uh, chronoscopies. You can double the size of the whole agency tonight. It's about how you treat and retain your staff. It's your own article on RTE that Ireland trains around 750 doctors every year, out of which 60% leave the country. This, this is a national emergency in itself. If you want to address this at a root cause level as to what's driving them away, you can double the size of the whole HSC. You will still be sitting here talking about not having space or, or people are waiting long times to be seen, waiting times that are up to 23, 33 um, hours long. And, and, and what's the thing is the silence at the part of the top brass, whether it's the hospital management or whether it's Department of Health or HSC, nobody wants to talk about it. This is a national emergency. Nobody in a developed country should be waiting 10, 15, 20 hours to see a doctor in an emergency department, cold waiting room, whether they're sitting on a, they'd be lucky if they find a chair, they might be sitting on a floor. And, but of course, it's all, it's all, 
it's all related to it. I mean, we know if you when you you hear and I mean, Edward was talking about you know almost being driven to tears by the state of the emergency department that he you know that he doesn't have to work in all the time, but 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 has to to visit a lot, has to treat patients and or come down to see people. He's like, if you've got that sort of a work environment, it's sure it's no wonder that people are, you know, qualifying and looking elsewhere to to actually work. Absolutely. Up till two years ago, we had a number of doctors that would go abroad, work and come back. But lately, I've been talking to my colleagues, doctors that have left. I think we had 490 doctors leave in the last six months or the last year, uh, last six months of 2022. 93% of them don't want to come back. And it has to do with your work environment, the way the doctors are t- treated. And uh, I'm not a nurse, but I speak for my nursing colleagues as well. The way they're being treated, the last emergency department I worked in, uh, if I go there now, I won't even recognize any of the nursing colleagues. That's such a high turnover. It comes down how you treat your healthcare staff. Uh, Again, I'm repeating myself that you can double the size of HSE and the hospital tonight. You're not going to have enough staff to run these facilities because nobody wants to continue to work uh, in, 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 in what environment which is not suitable in any way in, in terms of human factors ergonomics. Uh, it's, it's, you struggle sometimes, it's a simple thing, sometimes you struggle to find a working printer in an emergency department or a computer screen to sit down and do notes for your uh, patients or uh, to find a broken chair to see a patient. But unfortunately, no hospital management, HSE or the Department of Health would talk about that. And again, we as doctors are equally responsible. We are the part of the system. We need to bring this uh, to the forefront and we need to start talking about, uh, Mr. Edward was saying, we need to communicate with each other. And instead of putting out statements to undermine the issue, we need to actually highlight it and, and, and bring it to, uh, onto the national uh, forum. Uh, for everybody to see what's going on. And just, I mean, I'm just struck by the fact that you were there for 15 years. Was there any particular incident or, or uh, you know, moment that you thought, OK, that's it, I can't do this anymore? Uh, no, no, it, it was, uh, I, I thoroughly enjoyed working in HSE. Uh, HSE, our hospitals do amazing things once you get into the system. The problem is in and around getting into the system and the emergency departments. There was no particular incident. Now, I can write uh, a 1,000-page or not, if not more book on where I think uh, things went wrong, where they could have been avoided if we had uh, put in a little thought or we had uh, used clinical advice from our doctors and nurses to improve the system. We could have avoided those things. Uh, but unfortunately, that would require days to discuss but there is no particular incident. It's, it's over the years you get to a point that uh, I'm unable to deliver the care the way I want to, the way I was trained in Ireland. So I'm going to go and do either something different or go to a different country and then use my skills and resources. I know four brilliant ED physicians uh, who were struggling here in Ireland in terms of career progression. They all left in July, and now four of them are consultants in our neighboring country. Unfortunately, this, the, the, the culture needs to change. Our system, we as doctors need to change our practice and, and, and start being more upfront and stand up for our patients uh, and for each other to address this crisis. Yeah. 
Okay, I'll leave you back to your patience. I know I, and I appreciate you hanging on for us there, TJ. Many thanks for that. I need to take another break, but please stay with us. We've got uh, more on this after this. Talk to Joe on 0818 715 815. Joe Duffy! Talk to Joe on 0818 715 815. And I want to bring in uh, Dr. Murphy now. Dr. Mairead Murphy, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Katie. You have recently retired? Yes, um, I recently retired as clinical director from the Irish Defence Forces. Um, I had worked there for three years, um, a great experience. And uh, so I just recently retired. So I just want to, at the moment, I'm just doing some some voluntary work and um, for the moment just stepping back a bit and so I'm not working in the, in, in, in a hospital or in, a, in the medical world at the moment. But you were listening to our doctors there, Edward and, and TJ. I certainly was and, and, and to be quite honest I got very emotional listening to what they had to say as a doctor, as a clinician, listening to the families talk beforehand about their their, 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 their own children and people in their families that have suffered and I suppose I felt very emotional listening to it because as a clinician as a doctor I know and, and, and whatever they, everything they're saying is absolutely correct my concern there are hard, very hard workers in all of these worlds in the HSC in the hospitals everybody's trying to do their best but I always feel that it's the, it's the clinicians that need to be at the centre of making these policies in the HSE. They should bring together the, the people who work in the ambulance, the people who work in hospital, the people who work in general practices, the people who work in out-of-hours facilities. If they could bring them together in, in, in a format and let the problems and all of these voices be heard, all of these challenges communicate throughout the country the different shards it's, 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 I think it's a lack of communication and it's a lack of clinical speak throughout these areas. You have wonderful clinical staff in the country. I mean, for me, uh, 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 wonderful nurses, wonderful doctors, wonderful medics, wonderful people as well working the HSE, but it needs more clinical input into the decision-making area. Yeah, Maureen, thank you for that. I'm sure many, many people would agree with you on that and we're getting more calls in. I've got so many calls in, I'm just looking at the clock and I'm trying to fit in a couple of more before the the top of the hour. But many thanks for uh, calling us with that. I'm going to go to Sandra now. Sandra, good afternoon. Hi, good afternoon, Kate. Sorry, sorry, just clearing my throat. Uh, Sandra, you, you became unwell on just a few days ago, the 29th. Of December. Yes, yes, exactly. I'm actually, believe it or not, still in bed because I'm still not any much better. Because um, something else, which I wouldn't mind touching on, just as your medical people were speaking there, that I was surprised at, that would help, I think, in the backlog of um, and the A&Es. I discovered the scanners. I thought they still they worked 24-7, but apparently not. So there were people when I went out, I know I rang or contacted mm-hmm. you originally about the hour and a half, I was told I'd be waiting for an ambulance. A minimum, by the way, they said, kept saying at least, at least an hour and a half. And I live in Dublin, so I thought I'd be, you know, okay for an ambulance. But anyway, I had to get somebody to bring me because, I said, it was my heart. 
I suffer with, you know, ectopic heartbeat and tachycardia and and uh, when I rang, you know, the other hour stage, she said, no, look, oh, you really need to get to an emergency room. That was her words, not mine, not any emergency room. Right. Because she said a doctor wouldn't have the equipment if anything goes wrong. Basically, it could have a heart attack or whatever. And I also had TIAs in my brain, mini strokes, and I was having problems with my head too. And my heart palpitations and whatever. Okay, you were and very unwell, obviously. I was, and to be honest with you, I had avoided, because of the crisis and everything is, I was avoiding even looking for medical help. But I had felt unwell that day and continued and continued, and I took my own blood pressure as a monitor, and on that, my blood pressure, because I do suffer with very high blood pressure as well, but there's a heart, I don't know if you're familiar with monitors, but there's a, a heart piece on it, which gives you a heart rate and pulse and all that. But there's also an indicator to tell you if you have an irregular heartbeat. And I was having an attack at that stage, basically, as to put a better phrase, because it came up on the machine. So were you and able to tell the ambulance service that? Well, that was the problem. I couldn't get an ambulance. And they didn't know when they'd get to me. They, after, you know, as I said, he kept emphasising it would be at least, at least, at least one and a half hours. At okay. least. You did. I'm, I'm sorry to rush you, Sandra, but I'm being told I have to get slip in one more break before we, we finish up yeah, here. Yeah, no problem. You did manage to get to hospital. You're, you're, well, I did, you're on the, the mend. Scanners, I was sent home for two hours to get a sleep or to get a get No, there was nowhere to lie down, like the doctors are saying. So they sent some of us home, still patients, to come back for a scan at 8 o'clock the next morning, which seems ludicrous that the scanners apparently do not run through the night. Well, I think and that they was... cannot get an MRI scan, which I knew, normally have on my brain for my... But they can apparently even, they're so stuck for that, that the doctor told me they cannot get one done through the A&E unless they think it's a broken spine. But that was the doctor told, told me that herself. Yeah, I think that was a point that Edward was raising as well. I have to take this break. Sandra, thank you for that. We'll go to the break. Talk to Joe on 0818 715 815. Joe! Talk to Joe on 0818 715 815. And uh, that's it. We are out of time. I just want to say we've had a call in from David Hall from uh, its Lifeline uh, Ambulance Service. Uh, they've been asked to, to come in and augment the uh, existing uh, National Ambulance Service. And uh, he's just saying just to, to make sure people understand that if you are unwell, don't attempt, you know, the first line should be to call that ambulance that uh, uh, it's not advised uh, to attempt to take somebody in the car to, to uh, hospital yourself. I just wanted to, to add that there after those very distressing stories we heard earlier about difficulties and delays with the ambulance service. That's it. I'm out of, I'm out of time. Uh, the team today, Jamie Doyle was on sound, our BCO was Shane Galvin and the programme was produced by Lisa Marie Berry. Stand by now for Ray. 0818-715-815 stays open until 3.15pm or email joe at rte.ie